All right, thank you, Nathan, for reading that. Um, Nathan Ball is actually um, a key player for us this summer. He is our summer intern, so let's give it up for him. We love Nathan already, and uh, we're glad he's here and hanging out with us this summer. And so um, just wanted to make sure you guys knew that. If you see him, you are free to thank him for spending his summer with us. And as uh, all good interns need, give him a little bit of a hard time here and there, but only in love. We're in Hosea 4, if you want to turn there with us. We're going through the book of Hosea. And uh, we are exegeting, uh, you know, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line. But in Hosea chapter 4, things really take a turn and things change. In fact, Hosea chapter 4 starts a second section of this book. The first section of the book is Hosea 1 through 3. We just finished that up last week in a great um, reminder about biblical redemption where Hosea buys, purchases his own wife back to himself out of slavery. And of course, in chapters one through three, Hosea's life is really the story. His life is an illustration. His life, his family, his wife, his kids is the demonstration that we're looking at. And so it reads like a story and it unfolds before us and it shows us God's faithful love for unfaithful people. As some of you will remember, he was called by God to marry a wife who he knew would run off uh, from him and on him and would be unfaithful. And yet he stuck by her, stuck with her and loved her as a demonstration of God's relationship to us. Something we could all remember this morning that no matter where you're at in this room, whether you are walking with Jesus, far from Jesus, not sure, God loves you, and he loves you faithfully. He has a faithful love for unfaithful people. That's section one. Section two of Hosea, chapters four through 14, and those are broken up a little bit as well into even subsections. But Hosea four through 14 is a lot different than Hosea one through three. In Hosea one through three, we see a story. And then in Hosea four through 14, we see more like one side of a conversation. Right, like you ever been in a Starbucks, you know, like pre-quarantine and you're sitting there and you're trying to read something, sipping on your $22 frappuccino and there's someone next to you on the phone. And have you ever noticed this when you're in a coffee shop talking on the phone, it's like almost like all of a sudden you just like you're screaming everything. You can't because you can't perceive yourself real well. You don't have a lot of self-awareness in that moment. So someone's on the phone next to you and they're just like shouting and they don't even know they're doing it. Right. So we get this whole quiet coffee shop. And, and this one guy, one side of the conversation, going a million miles an hour, super loud, and it's likely me, so forgive me, because I do this all the time, and I have embarrassed Joanna on many occasions on the phone in a in face. But point being, it, it sort of reads like that. It's loud, it's in your face, and it's one side of the conversation between God and Israel, and it's God's side. So what I mean by this is that as you go through Hosea 4 through 14, perhaps you're studying this on your own, it's not going to break down into chapters real well. It wasn't meant to be broken down into chapters real well. It doesn't read like that. It's more scattered than that, right? So what you will see is several themes per chapter. Maybe he'll hit two or three themes early in the chapter, and he'll circle back 
to those a few times, maybe in order, maybe not in order. It's really reading almost like a one-sided conversation. So when you go to read Hosea 4 through 14, here's what I've done in this second section of the book is that I go through it and look for themes. And I highlight everything on that theme, wherever it is. There are a few clear themes in Hosea 4 through 14. Um, sin is one of them. Mark that in uh, highlighter. I use red for that one. Then you got his relationship to the leadership of Israel. So there's several um, moments in Hosea 4 through 14 where God is specifically talking to the leaders, the priests, the king. Mark that. I mark that in yellow. Consequences for sin is another big theme. The idea of judgment, marking that. Then you got God's love. Remember, as dark as this book can get, and as intense and dramatic as this book can get, this is a book about how God loves us. It does do a great job at showing us just how far we've gone, but it also does a great job of showing us just how close God's willing to come. And so we mark those verses on God's love as well. And as you do that, you'll see that there's really four or five big mega themes in Hosea 4 through 14, but they don't all read chronologically in order the way we would prefer probably as Westerners. They read more like a one-sided conversation. One of those themes, one of those mega themes we're going to hit, and we'll try to hit this today, is sin. Sin. One of the jobs of a prophet like Hosea, one of his main jobs is to shed light on the sin of the people. It is to inform them of their sin. It is to expose their sin to them. Now, some of you know this. Some of you don't. Newer to the Bible, welcome. Right? You're not required to know this, but here's the idea. If you know anything about the minor prophets that, or that, that place in Scripture, that time in history, you know that the people of Israel were like in major sin. And so you might wonder why they would need a prophet to tell them they're in sin. Like, wouldn't they know? Like, why would they need a prophet to expose their sin? Like, wouldn't they be aware? Like, why would he need to shed light on the sin? It's already in the streets, in the open. And here's why. The prophets had to do such intense work on just exposing, just informing, here's your sin to the people. It's because of the deceptive nature of our sin. Sin is deceptive and it blinds us. And so, truthfully, it is incredibly difficult to truly be aware of your own sin. Now, don't get me wrong, it's easy to spot sin. It's easy to call someone else's sin out. It's easy. Hosea is not, he doesn't have a real difficult job in this regard. Now, the prophets, you know, usually were murdered, so I guess that would be tough. But... In the sense of calling out sin on someone else, no problem. I mean, this is the easiest thing I do in a week. Talk to you guys about your sin. The hardest thing I do in a week is try to recognize, realize, and come to grips with my sin. It, sin is blinding. It's hard for us to see when it's our own because we get so used to it. I'll give you this illustration. Um, as some of you know, we just moved over to West Greenville, and we bought a house. And it's really interesting when you buy a house because... Um, you, it's like the largest purchase you make, and yet you only go in there like two or three times before you sign the papers. At least that's my experience. 
And so I remember it was like the last time we were going to go in there before we signed the papers. And um, it, it, this maybe the second, third time we'd been in there. I think we went in three total times. And so we're in the house and we go to the backyard. And there's this lovely fence around the backyard. That's, part, that's really why we bought the house. Like just so our kids would be enclosed in a space that they can just roam in. And we might get a second of peace of mind. Anyway, so we got this big enclosed backyard and we're looking at it. And because there's a big fence, you can't see what's directly on the other side of the fence. It turns out as we're standing there on the back porch in the backyard, what's directly on the other side of the fence is a train track. So we're standing there on the backyard and things kind of start to, we're on the back deck in the backyard, things start to rumble a little bit. And then all of a sudden we're like, what is that? It's like an earthquake, what's going on? Then all of a sudden this massive freight train comes by the back, like literally, like it feels like you could just reach across the back fence and touch it. It is like directly behind our house. And we're like, that's pretty noisy. <laughs> I didn't know that was part of this deal. They never mentioned the train in the little descriptor on Zillow. And we're just looking at each other like, I wonder if this is a problem. Well, we get in, we buy the house, we get in there, first night, you hear everything shaking, you hear the rumbling, you hear, I mean, you hear it coming, you hear the, I mean, it, that thing just passes right by maybe, maybe 50 feet uh, outside our bedroom window. And that first night we're in the house, that thing passes by, the kids come running into our room, we're all looking out the window, watching the train, the kids love it, the kids, love it. but they think train, so I didn't even know trains still were a thing, they'd have no idea. So they're just like, oh, this is normal, there's a train in the backyard, it's amazing. And this train goes by, and we notice it. Second day, train goes by, we go out, we look, notice it. We can hear it. We've only lived there a month, four weeks, as of today. And let me just tell you, I haven't heard that train go by in three and a half weeks. Because you just get used to it. That thing could go by, it goes by like three, four times a day. I don't even notice anymore. It's only been a month. We don't run to the back window. We don't look out and see it. I don't even notice it. It doesn't wake me up. It's like it's not even there. And it is a freight train going like really close to my house. And I don't even see it. And it's just such a good example of our sin. Your sin could be a freight train running through your life and you could just be like so confused on why everything's working. Why is this not working out? What's wrong? What's the problem? And sometimes, for some reason, the deceptive nature of our sin blinds us to our own destructive nature. Whereas we could call it out if it was someone else's train, our freight train, we can't even hear. This is why God sends his word in the Old Testament through a prophet, now in today's age, through the scriptures, to illuminate and to expose our sin to us and for us. So that we can see the train and the tracks that are causing such noise in our lives. This is one of Hosea's jobs in Hosea 4 through 14. Open the eyes of the people to their sin. Look at Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. We're going to be, you're going to be in Hosea 4. I'm going to jump around a little bit. Like I said, this is a mega theme coming in and out throughout all these chapters. But for your sake, you can, you can stay in chapter 4. Some of our verses will be from there. Hosea 4, 1 through 3 says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. 
For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, no mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood or bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore shall the land mourn and everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea shall also be taken away. In other words, this whole place is going to be hit by this freight train. So let me make you aware that one is coming. It is your sin. Verse 1 and 2, he takes them to task, man. He is like a Christian drill sergeant, and this is the first day of Bible boot camp. He is also acting sort of like a lawyer in verse 1 because he says that the Lord has controversy with the people. This is actually in the Hebrew a legal term meaning that God had made a covenant, a loving covenant with his people. That covenant, like a beautiful contract, not a contract, but like a similar concept to a promise like this came with terms. It was the law. They had broken the law of the covenant, and now the king who gave the law has reason to bring about judgment. This is a, a grounds for a legal dispute, and he summarizes their rap sheet. He summarizes the charges against them, saying, you have sinned in two ways. You have sinned internally, and you have sinned externally. See if you pick up on this. Let's read back through verse 1 and 2. See if you can see this. All right? Internal sins, external sins. The word of the Lord, children of Israel, for the Lord hath controversy with the inhabitants, because there is no truth, mercy, or knowledge. Those are matters of the heart and matters of the mind. Those are internal concepts. Verse 2 switches quickly, almost abruptly, by swearing, lying, killing, stealing, and committing adultery. They break out or they go beyond all bounds. They are way off the rails. This freight train's coming straight for him. But he mentions five of the Ten Commandments, which is really a summary way of saying you've broken all ten. And these are external sins, things you do with your words, the things that come out of you, the things you do with your hands, the things you do with your life. These are external. Do you see this, how he preaches throughout these two verses and then throughout the rest of Hosea 4 through 14 against internal and external sins? He seems to really make those two categories. He's preaching against both because we need to be aware of both. Now, you might be wondering, why do I need to be aware of this? Well, I don't want to know. That's me. <laughs> there are times where I got to do my devotions, where I got to have small group or conversation with a Christian friend, and I know it's time for accountability, and I do not want to talk about this. I don't want my sin exposed. Why should we be so aware of these sins? internal and external. Well, here's one thing I do want to remember. We are in the New Testament. We're reading the Old Testament because it's written for us. It is God's inspired word. It is absolutely profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, instruction, and righteousness. But we're in the New Testament. We are under a new covenant. Praise his name. Jesus knows all our sins. He's already aware, and he loves us anyway. Jesus died on the cross for our internal and external sins. He has paid it in full, and thus there is nothing left for us to do to get to God. God has come to us. This is the gospel, the good news. He is risen. We will rise. 
Sin will be destroyed. There will be a new heaven, new earth. We will live with him and without sin or the serpent forever and ever. Praise the Lord. But it's important not to get to God to expose our sin. He's already come to us. But it's important for us in our worship to God. Because you see, as someone who's saved by this great redemption, this great redeemer, this great savior, Jesus, the call is to surrender to him and follow him. And your sin, internal and external, are the areas in which you're not following him. You're not worshiping him. And you're not receiving all that he has for you in those areas. You are not yielding to the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit is goodness. So there's also this practical thing to where it's so important for our worship, but I also think there's a piece of it. You can read the book of Proverbs. This is absolutely valid. It is not the prosperity gospel. There's a piece of it to where your sin is like a freight train knocking you down. And God wants you to have life and life more abundantly. There is a joy to fighting our sin and finding righteousness and, and, and victory over areas that are coming with some serious consequences. Peter, one of the apostles, says, you're going to suffer. Just look, don't suffer for unrighteousness, suffer for righteousness. And it is suffering to expose our sin, to ask for help, to repent, and to walk out repentance. It hurts. But that's the hurt you want, not the hurt of your sin finding you out. And so we need our sins exposed, that we might worship, and that we might live with joy, that we might repent. So let's look through these internal and external sins of Israel and see if any stick to us as we walk by them. Let's, let's start with this. What are internal sins? What are internal sins? Well, they're the sins you don't see. Now, when it comes with internal, for, to internal sins, there are much less of these listed in the scriptures. Okay, so there, there's just a few of these comparatively. Uh, I'll give you an example. In the Ten Commandments, there's only one internal sin listed. And it's the 10th commandment, the sin of covetousness, right? This idea of overwhelming jealousy and discontent, wanting someone else's life. You can't see when someone is covetous, really, right? Like I'm standing up here, it's clear I'm an incredibly good looking guy with a great shirt. I can't see how covetous you must be of me right now. Right? I'm just kidding, obviously, hopefully that's a joke. That's, that's a joke. Uh, you can't see covetousness. You can't see when you can't see this sin, but it is a sin. There is an internality to it, but it is sin nonetheless. And so the big idea from all of this is that there's these sins that happen on the inside, and really what they are is that they are a failure ultimately to reflect the heart of God. It is a failure when your heart fails to reflect the heart of God. It is the failure of, not, you're not cultivating the heart of God. We actually see this directly in the text, though it is a little cryptic. Look back at verse 1. It's, he's talking about that there's no truth, which is the idea of faithfulness. It's the idea of faithful searching for truth, upholding truth. There is no mercy, which means there's no love for one another in their hearts. There's no steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God. They're not seeking Him to learn His ways. They don't care. And the reason he calls out those three things is because those three things are used in chapter 2 to describe the heart of God towards them. If you want to 
write this down. It's Hosea 2.19, where we preached on this a few weeks ago in our outdoor services. But it's the idea that God makes this prophecy, this promise, where he's going to bring them back to himself uh, again in a new covenant. And he talks about being betrothed to them again. And he says he's going to betroth himself to them in righteousness, judgment, loving kindness, and mercy. And the idea is, though it's stated a little differently, in Hosea 2.19, he's saying, I'm coming to you with truth, mercy, and knowledge and wisdom. And yet the sin that they are committing here is that they're failing to receive the heart of God, love God with all their heart, and thus reflect the heart of God with theirs. Really, ultimately, it's a failure to love God. God is truthful to them. They don't love him, thus they are not truthful people. God is merciful to them. They refuse to receive it, and thus they are not merciful people. God is willing to give them all kinds of wisdom and knowledge. He is the God only wise, and yet they have failed to take this to heart. Internal sins, in essence, they're a failure to cultivate the heart of God, a failure to love God back. What are the internal sins that they committed? One that's called out all throughout the book, religion. Religion is a sin. Say, we're in church, aren't we religious? No, we are not religious. We're not people of religion. We are gospel people. We are people of a faith. We are people in relationship with God. Religion is much different. Religion is all doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Religion is an internal sin, and it's this idea that you're going to deceive God. You're going to act right, pray right, say right, and He will give you good things. He's going to come back to you with blessings and physical help and all these things that, honestly, you covet. It's the idea that you are going to impress God instead of love God. You're not going to have a relationship with God. You're going to have a transaction with God where you do what he says, and then he do, does what you say. That's religion, and this is one of their sins. You see this in Hosea 7.14. He calls them out. He says, you have cried unto me, but not with your heart. You howled on your beds, but you assembled yourselves for corn and wine. Next verse says, then they rebelled against me. Well, they got some activity, right? Assembling themselves, they got some activity, they're crying out. And God says, you're doing this in hopes for more abundance, not in any way to know me or to be known by me. This is called religion. Religion is when we attempt to get something out of God. The gospel is we get God, amen? The, the religion is we're going to be good kids so that we get good toys at Christmas. The gospel is you're terrible kids. God has come to you and he has showered you with every blessing you can imagine because he loves you. They would not receive mercy. Thus, they don't become merciful people. They don't receive knowledge. They'll become knowledgeable people. They don't receive truth. They don't become truthful people. They become religious people. Another sin that they are uh, accused of in the scriptures is disbelief. It's an internal sin. Hosea 8.9 says that they went up to Assyria and Ephraim, which is another word for Israel, hired lovers. Long story short, they didn't want to believe, they couldn't believe that God would protect them, though they've had a long history of winning battles they were supposed to lose. 
They have a long history of seas parting and them walking through on dry ground. But at this point, they don't want to believe in something they can't see. So they go to an unholy nation and make an unholy alliance, a place called Assyria, where they buy protection and basically enslave themselves to a higher, bigger army that they can see. All because of disbelief. In your chapter, the chapter that I wanted you to stick in, Hebrews 4.12, you can see this. This is, that's on a national level. Here's more individual, their disbelief. My people ask counsel at their stocks, or they're asking for wisdom uh, from their walking sticks. Their staff declareth unto them, or speaks oracles to them. This idea is witchcraft. The idea is they're, they're, they don't want to pray to a God they cannot see and wait for him to do miracles. They want to be into things they can see and do miracles. And so they get into the dark arts and they get into casting spells and they get into mysticism. It's coming from a place of disbelief. Three, complacency. Another internal sin they struggle with that they're dealing with is complacency. Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they have rejected knowledge. Right? They're not learning more and more. They're not studying the word. They're not, they're not uh, learning the law. They're good with what they know about God, and they're ready to move on to something else. They have not embraced the idea that learning about God is a lifelong pursuit. You need to embrace this idea, and so do I. Right? Don't think you, you, you might have even grown up in a, in, a, in a culture where you feel like you have been saturated by Bible. Christian this, Christian that, youth group, whatever. The truth is that, that, that you couldn't be saturated if you sat there for 100,000 years. There is always more room to learn about God and to know Him more fully. Yet they're complacent. They're good with what they got. They want to move on to another topic, something they would deem more thrilling. And this one's really interesting because Hosea 4.6, this is one of the few places, it's not the only place, but it's one of the few places where it talks about how they're destroyed by this sin. So he, he puts the consequence in there. He says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. That is really interesting. It is interesting that if we decrease right, in knowledge of God, the destruction in our life can, can increase. It is interesting that if we fail to build our knowledge of God, we can tear down our lives. That is a, just an interesting concept. And I believe I've seen it. I've even seen it in our own denomination. Right? I'm not even talking about out in the world, out some other group that's wrong, whatever. I'm talking about like in our churches. I've seen it. I've been a product of it. I remember... Um, there's a time in my life, part of a certain group of churches that I love, they love me, but all they ever talked about were two things, right? standards and hellfire and brimstone, those two things, every message. And you say, why did they talk about those two things? Well, standards and hellfire and brimstone are in the Bible. You say, well, then what's the problem? The problem is they're not the only thing in the Bible, there's actually a lot of complacency. Though they were preaching some of the hardest topics to preach, they weren't preaching all the topics to preach. I literally remember having a guy come preach to our, uh, I'll just say the group I was in, he preached five messages. A few weeks later, we went to another thing with him. He preached the same five messages. And I'm just saying, look, there's a little bit of complacency somewhere in there. 
Like, you're, just, you're not learning anything new and delivering fresh bread, my friend. Like, there's more to it than this. There is this, but there's more to it than this. And what happens when you get complacent on teaching the whole counsel of God and talking about all that God talks about and going through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, whatever the Bible wants to talk about, however often it wants to talk about it, is that you end up hurting people and destroying people. You say, well, like who? Well, just ask the youth. Ask the youth in your church. Ask the youth in our church. Ask the youth in the church in general. Right? They're like, well, I think it's about this and this. And you're like, no, there's worlds of stuff that you're missing. And guess what? It's not their fault. Right? They're destroyed for lack of knowledge. It's the teacher's fault. It's my fault. And so we have to be careful not to destroy ourselves by being complacent and thinking we know it all. We know how it should be. We know what the culture should be. We know what this should be, what that should be. No, the truth is, is that there is only one truth. There is only one scripture. God never changes. But you're a human being who hasn't learned at all and has plenty of room to grow. And as you grow, you teach other people and they grow. This is the idea of sanctification. This is God's idea. They don't want sanctification. They're complacent. Complacent. They're just good with what they got. Let's just stick with this. What are your internal sins? What are your internal sins? I want to say this about internal sins, because um, I think this is important to note. Internal sins work a lot differently than external sins. Internal sins and external sins are a lot different. There's, there's, you don't deal with them the same way because they're not the same thing. And let me explain what I mean by this. External sins, you can stop. Like, if you're, like, shoplifting every day, like, let's say you go down to QT, best gas station in America. You know why? Because they clean it. You say, what's different between QT and every other gas station? The Slurpees? No. The food? Not really. They just use a mop. That's it. That's the only difference. That's why they're so successful. They went into their own restrooms and cleaned them. And everybody loves it. And you go to QT, and you get in there, and you know you get your big Q, and you put something in your pocket, you walk out. This is something you do every day. You're stealing. It is totally appropriate for me or someone to come to you and be like, hey, stop. Because you can stop. Like, you don't have to go in that store and slip something in your pocket. It is totally possible to put it away. Internal sins are not like that. And you need to know this before you get on some crazy year-long guilt trip trying to fight these things. Right? Have you ever seen someone come up to you and they're anxious and you say, oh, just calm down. And have they ever been like, oh, okay, okay, cool. Done with that. Anybody depressed ever came up to you and you say, oh, I got an idea, just cheer up. And they're like, ah, I hadn't thought of that. That's right. Okay, I'm feeling better. Yeah, anybody ever seen this, right? Angry guy, hey, calm down. What's that do? Ramps that dude up to the Hulk, right? You tell an angry guy to calm down, you're going to die. Internal sins do not work like external sins. You need to know this. When it comes to your internal sins, you need to be exposed to what those are, but you're not going to be able to fix it by the time you get to lunch. You're not going to be able to just knock this off. What, ex, what internal sins do is they expose to you a trajectory, a path that you, are, that you are prone to walk on. And your job 
is not necessarily, unless the Lord does this for you, sometimes he does this, if, if it's his will, just boom, change of heart. That's really not what's going to happen typically. I've seen God do it. It doesn't happen every day. Your job is to be aware of that trajectory and every day start repenting of it. Every day start turning from it. Every day notice it and preach the gospel to it. Every day notice it and believe the gospel in it. And over time, your job is to reject the lies you're believing and embrace truth. And it's this lifelong turning of the ship most of the time. And there'll be seasons where you're turning super fast. There'll be seasons where you're barely turning. There'll be seasons where you're like going back. And that is a normal Christian experience. The idea, though, is this. Your job is to notice the path you're on and start to turn the ship. You are not probably going to change this on a dime, but you are responsible to begin to put the gospel right there into your internal sins and start the shift. God will help you and put some winds in your sails along the way, and you will do this till you meet him. That's internal sin. Right? My internal sin is I don't trust God. I do trust God to save me. I trust his blood, his death, his resurrection. But for some reason, I don't trust God like with the leak in my roof. I'm like, oh man, God brought me this far to drown me in this house. All of a sudden, it's like there's no God. And then like two weeks later, when there is no leak, I'm like, why did I panic about that? I, I have to notice that I'm not trusting God in this little thing. I need to be like, God... You can, hand, you can help me, you can provide for that, you can make this happen. Even these little things. What are your internal sins? He goes on to preach against external sins. Verse 2, swearing, lying, killing, stealing, committing adultery. They break out, blood touches blood. I mean, notice how bad this is, right? Blood touches blood means the idea that there's a street fight, and before they can clean up the blood from the street fight, there's another street fight. Blood touches blood. I mean, this is, this is just, I mean, these are some of the worst sins. These are external sins. What are external sins? These are the sins that you can see. So internal sins are basically, there's this idea that it's a failure to cultivate the heart of God. External sins are a failure to act like God, to do what God would do, to, as we would say it on this side of the new covenant, follow Jesus. Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as dear children. It's supposed to be like father, like son. External sins are when it's not. Deep down, it's really the chief sin of not loving your neighbor as yourself. For them, these external sins got out of hand, as much sin does, and it grew and grew and grew until, I mean, these guys were in some of the most insane things you can think of if you read the book of hosea like honestly it's a little tough to even talk about because it's just so cringy but we're talking about cult prostitution we're talking about child sacrifice i mean it's it is nuts they their freight train has gone off the rails broken down the house and is going through the city i mean it's dramatic in this book their external sin and as I'm reading through Hosea, I'm thinking about us, and I'm saying, we're going to think this isn't about us, aren't we? Because we're not murdering people in the streets. We're going to think this is about somebody else. And then I come across Hosea 12, 7, and I'm like, see, he is calling out the extreme. 
And we might not right now, I mean, we're not past it, okay? We might not be in the extreme right now, some of most of us, if not all of us, right? But we're still in on these external sins. We still have some. One of them, he calls out, is not extreme. It's more subtle. It's injustice. He calls out injustice. Injustice is when you don't treat people like you would want to be treated. It's when you don't treat people fairly. In Hosea 12, 7, he talks about Israel being a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loves to oppress. And he carries the idea, the author of Hosea carries the idea that the poor couldn't be educated and they couldn't learn math and they don't know how to read what the receipt you're handing them. And so they come to the merchant and he says, well, if it's two pounds, it's ten dollars. And so they put their fruit up in the scale and the scale is rigged to always hit two pounds, even if it's a half pound. And the poor can't perceive what's going on and so the rich are getting richer off the uneducation of the poor on purpose deceiving them and that's unjust that's not right that's not fair and here's the truth is that we're not always fair now life isn't fair but that doesn't mean you're not supposed to be fair is there anyone that you treat different is there anyone that you don't treat as an equal, an image bearer of God? Look, I don't know what yours is, but I'm just telling you, this book is for us. We got our own external sins. We have our external, what are your external sins? They need to be exposed. You need to know what they are. Ask your wife. Put a helmet on, but ask your wife. She'll tell you what you're doing, and it's going to hurt. Ask your husband. Ask your friends. Ask your, ask your small group. Ask, ask your Christian accountability. Like, what are my external sins? We need to know because we don't naturally know. We need to know. It's Hosea's job is to expose the sin of the people. Now, I want to get to this because this is also in chapter 4. There's internal sins and external sins, and then Hosea's job is to expose those, and he's also exposing the connection, that there is a correlation between internal and external sins. See, what is the correlation between internal and external sins? We see this in verse 7. We see it in verses 1 and 2, but I'll give you another place, verse 7. And what we're going to see in verse 7 is that external sins are actually results of internal sins. That it starts with internal sins, proceeds out to external sins. Hosea 4, 7 says, as they were increased, so they sinned against me. Or the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. That's the idea. So what was increased? It was the priests and their fierce um, commitment to a lack of knowledge. That's the context of Hosea 4, 7. The idea is their priests are in trouble. And we're going to talk about this in an upcoming message about God's speaking to the leadership of Israel in Hosea. But the priests really didn't care for knowledge. Thus, they weren't teaching in the temple any knowledge of God. And the more priests they get, the, more, uh, the less knowledge is out there, the more the people sin. So you would think, it's supposed to be kind of shocking, you would think that the more priests the nation had, the more Bible they'd get, the more they'd repent, the better they'd be on this idea of obeying. But the truth is, as more priests come into the temple and do their thing, the people are getting worse. The internal sin, this lack of knowledge, this apathy and complacency is producing more external sin. There is a connection. Jesus himself, our Savior, our Lord, our King, Jesus taught this in the passage, in turn Nathan, 
read for us this morning. What happened in that passage, the context of it is Jesus is out with his 12 disciples and they are working hard and they're around people, not social distance, right? This is social proximity. And remember, they're hanging out with like the sick, the lepers. They're hanging out with just, just the people, the homeless. They're hanging out with all kinds of people and they come into the Pharisees' house to eat. And to be honest, it is a little gross to think about, but his disciples sit down without washing their hands and they start breaking bread and passing it down. And the Pharisees are, they're going into, they're having a heart attack, right? It's like, I mean, they're like Dr. Fauci and the CDC. They're wanting to arrest these people. Like, wash your hands, man. And so the Pharisees are trying to arrest them. They can go to Jesus. They're like, they're breaking the tradition. And here's the, the Pharisees' angle on it. It's not so much contamination, but they had this religious belief that, that if you were unclean and then you ate, you yourself became unclean morally. And Jesus flips that whole idea on its head. Jesus turns that all around. And he says, what goes into you doesn't defile you. That doesn't make you sinful. Your heart produces sin that comes out of you. That's what's making you sinful. Uh, contamination going into the stomach isn't going isn't to cause sin and uncleanness and immorality. The idea is you've got contamination in the heart. That's what's coming out of you. And that's your sin. He flips that totally on its head. And of course, it fits with the storyline of Jesus as his whole goal was not to make moral people to make an immoral people either but his goal wasn't to make a moral people it was to make a people of love with people with relationship to him people that followed him from the heart he came for the heart because he knew that was the seed of our sin internal preceded external i mean i remember doing this work as a youth pastor i was a youth pastor for about five years it was awesome and um while I was a youth pastor, I remember having this conversation a handful of times with parents. I tried to be as respectful as I could since I was not a parent. And the last thing, you know, that a parent of a teenager wants to hear is like a 23-year-old saying, here's how you do it, um, when I could barely, you know, make my own breakfast. So the idea is their parents would come to me and say, our kid is a great kid, but he's gotten with this bad group of friends, and they're p like basically pouring sin into him. That's the problem. The, 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 these, this contamination is coming in from the culture. This contamination is coming in from the friends, from the world, and it's making him sinful. That's basically what they're saying. They say it a lot more Christian than that, but that's what they're saying. And I, honestly, I, look, I'm not saying I'm the king of parenting. Trust me, okay? You might see Alden running in with some animal he found outside later, but after the services order, we don't know. I'm not saying I'm the best parent, but I had to tell him, like just from Jesus, the problem isn't outside your kid. I love your kid. I was once your kid. Without Jesus, I'd be your kid right now. But here's the, your, your problem's coming from within your kid. You have to understand that there is a reason that's the crowd he's attracted to anyway. That, that, that there's a reason he's not rejecting and thinking through and denying all the things they're pouring into him. You have to realize there's a reason they like him. That it's not that your kid was perfect and bad things got into him. It's that your kid had a sinful heart and now bad things are coming out of him. That's the teaching of Jesus. And what your kid needs then is not to fix externals. Now, there is wisdom, especially with youth. 
on picking friends. That's true. Not talking about that. What I'm talking about ultimately is that the ultimate surgery doesn't need to be done on the friends. It needs to be done on the heart. That's where the ultimate surgery has to take place. And this is what I'm trying to teach us is that we are not religious people who spend our whole lives nitpicking our externals. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not to constantly modify your behavior. The good news is that Jesus sees your bad behavior, dies in your place for your sin, rises from death, sends his Holy Spirit, tethers you to him, and you spend a life worshiping him from the heart and from the inside out. You are transformed into his image. We spend time on the internals. I told those parents, I'm like, all right, you cut off these friends without working on the heart. In two years, your kid will be that friend. In two, when that kid hits senior year, he'll be the one. The other parents are coming to me like, our kid was great. Till he met Tommy. Tommy kept him up late. Night. Now our kid is ruined. And I'd have to tell them, hey, it's not yours either. It's not, it's not Tommy. It's your heart. The idea is not that there's nothing we should avoid. There are definitely things we should not come in contact with in culture. The idea is the majority, the main surgery needs to be done on the heart. That's where our sin is coming from. We're to blame. Not America. Not the culture. Not our parents. They some blame, but we're to blame. We need our sin exposed. We need to be able to see it. And when we do, focus on those internals. Give your heart to the king. Love him. Look, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and be in awe of him. And externals, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, do begin to change. In fact, that brings us to our application. What's our response to this idea? Okay, our sin's exposed. That's no fun. Hosea is exposing the sin of the people. They're not particularly enjoying it. What are their options? Well, they have two options, to be stubborn or submissive, to be stubborn or to seek God. They choose being stubborn. Look at Hosea 4.16. Hosea 4.16, King James says it this way, For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. And that word, that's very, it's kind of a word play. Slideth back is the idea of being stubborn, right? They're stubborn like a backsliding or a stubborn heifer. And it's a word play. Say they're backsliding. They're going further from the truth once the truth is exposed. You see, because the truth is uncomfortable, we want to run from it. Because the truth is uncomfortable, we want to hide ourselves from God instead of what God wants, which is to run to God. See, confession is when we come to God and agree. All right, you're right. That was bad. This attitude is wrong. These actions must be stopped. Help me, help me, help me. Stubbornness, backsliding, is when we are stubborn and we disagree with God and say, I'm going to figure it out. And when we do this, we go further in to the sins that are being called out rather than coming out of them. It's called backsliding. And it's actually a really big deal. I think backsliding is a bigger deal than we think. Because it's one thing to be blind to your own sin. That's natural. That happens. That's a normal Christian experience. But when you get to the Word, or when you get to a Christian friend filled with the Spirit, and they expose your sin, and you close your eyes to it on purpose, that's a whole other thing. 
I read a quote the other day that no one is so blind as those who will not listen. And that's true. If our sin is exposed and we reject it, deny it, don't embrace it, but run from it, we're in a world of hurt. Our eyes are sealed shut, and we may never see them again, and thus we may never repent, and it may be that we have to bear some of the consequences that come with those sins. And if you never turn to Christ for forgiveness of all your sins, you'll have an eternity of consequences. What did God want them to respond like? As God exposes these sins, it sounds kind of like God's being harsh, right? You read through Hosea 4 through 14, man, this is intense. These minor prophets are not rated G, okay? He comes through, he's like, here's how bad you are. But what does God want? He actually wants them to come to him. Hosea 5.15, here's what God says. Hosea 5.15, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense or acknowledge their sin and then seek my face. Whoa, this is awesome. This is gospel, good news. That you're a sinner, but God doesn't want you to run from him. He welcomes you to run to him. He says, I want you to seek my face. I'm exposing your sin, not that you might be ashamed and hide from my face, but seek my face. And I love that, my face. I mean, I got to think about that. Why does he say, not just seek me or my throne, seek my face? What's, what's, the, what's that language all about in Hosea? And I don't know, I just started thinking about it. And I think there's this piece of it to where face is this idea of relationship, face to face. Face is this idea of friendship. Uh, Exodus 33, 11 says that the Lord God spake with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And there's this idea that I don't think we see God like this enough, that he exposes our sin not because he hates us. He exposes our sin because he likes us. Amen? It's because he loves us. It like, like, it truly, it, he, he is fighting for our joy more than we are. It's, it's a phenomenon, but as much as you think you want peace, God wants it all the more for you. He says, seek my face. In other words, he's offering to help you out. And so we see that ultimately in Jesus, he comes, his face covered in blood, crown of thorns atop of it, He's taking care of our sin. He's come with open arms, nailed to wood, willing to help us out. And the idea is, as our sin is exposed, we see the love of God, we see the good news, and we say, all right, here's what I've done. Here's, here's what I am. Help me out. And here's what I have found, that God is willing to answer that prayer, able to answer that prayer. It is a maddening journey. It is painful at times, but it is a prayer that can be answered. And we'll never be a perfect people, but we can be a progressing people in progressive sanctification. Stubborn, submissive. I'll close with a story. I know I'm going really long, but it's Hosea. I mean, there's a lot to talk about. A couple days ago, I went with my son, Alden, to get a milkshake. This is a true story, by the way. All my stories are true, by the way. I know they're nuts, but this is my life. Get out the cameras, I would be the number one reality TV star in America. That would not be good, right? I would go viral for all the wrong reasons. But I was getting a milkshake with Alden at this place called 
grill marks. Grill marks is way, just way overpriced burgers, delicious. But yeah, it's like ridiculous, right? Like what does it come with an oil change or something? It's like, this is nuts. And so anyway, I go get this milkshake with Alden and it was the most dramatic lunch I've ever had. It, I thought I was on a hidden camera show. Okay, this, I mean, it was nuts. There's this dude sitting at the bar who has apparently been there two, three hours before I got there and it was only one in the afternoon. And in his defense a little bit, they were serving him for two or three hours as he's down in beers at the mall, okay? This place is at the mall. So he's like next to a JCPenney just getting hammered. He's drinking like crazy. And of course he's getting loud and obnoxious, bat, foul mouth. There's kids and families there. And the manager comes and asks him to leave. And it's this awkward scene where he won't leave. So the manager calls the cops and the cops come and talk to him. And finally he walks outside with them. And I was really proud of our guys, our, our Greenville police, man. They gave this dude every chance to just go home. And he's yelling, slurring. I mean, he is all over the place. And finally, and they're, they're just saying, look, just go home. They're giving him every help they can. And so this dude starts to walk towards his car. And they're like, you can't go home in your car. Like, you can't even say car, right? Like, you can't. And he's like, I'm going in my car. And they're like, no, you need a taxi or an Uber. This is a guy, by the way, this is not a transient fella with nothing. This is a guy dressed very normal, has a cell phone, can afford 20 beers. Okay, this is, this is not like a down and outer. This is just a regular guy, and he's like, I'm going home in my car. And they're like, no, you're not. And they're giving this dude every chance. Now, this is just part of the story. Okay, it has nothing to do with anything. At that time, a dude in the restaurant passes out. His wife runs to him. All these other guys from the restaurant run to him. One of the policemen runs to him, and it turns out... He starts laughing. He's playing a prank on his wife. And everybody's like, dude, that's messed up. <laughs> Including myself. I'm like watching this dude die while I'm eating you know, a milkshake with Alden. And then everybody's attention after they're mad at this dude, especially his wife was, she left. I mean, anyway, <laughs> after all this, our attention goes back to the drunk guy. That's a true story, okay? Drunk guy's yelling at the police about getting in his car, and finally he's so belligerent they have to arrest him. And like this stubborn donkey in Hosea, he's kicking and screaming the whole way. And here I am thinking, that is exactly, exactly what I'm talking about on Sunday. Here's the idea, all right? The idea is that you may not know you're sitting at grill marks having too much. Okay, You may not be able to see, but when someone comes along and exposes your sin and says, you need to come home, Right? You have this option to receive help, to ask for help, to seek God's face, or to kick and scream. And here's the truth, right? is that that is really up to you. Like We're all about God's sovereignty, and we are all about free will, and you've got a choice in this matter. And Hosea is imploring the people, choose the help, seek God's face, read the scriptures, learn of Him, Come to the church at, in that day, the temple. Ask for help. Seek God's face. Because here's the truth. We got a great God who's willing to help. He exposes our sin. Not so he could shun us, but so that he can help us. 
And we see that he's, all, he's already willing because he already ran to get us and he ran through a Roman cross with us on his mind. May we seek his face in our sin. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing some songs to this good God. Jesus, thank you for exposing our sin as hard as it is for us to come to grips with just what we've done in this world and what we've become. I pray that we would let it be exposed as we read the word, as we come to church, as we sit in small groups. May, may our sin be exposed that we might find life in repentance, that we might find life in following you, that our hearts over time might change. Please, Jesus, change something deep inside of us and ignite a passion for you on the inside of us that we might obey. Lord, you have a passion for us. We see that in the cross, and we just want to respond by being passionate to you and for you and about you. In Jesus' name, amen.